Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be looking at resilience in the face of trauma. My guest is Dr. Lori Nadell, an old friend, a psychotherapist specializing in acute stress and trauma. She is the author of The Five Gifts, Recovering Hope, Strength, and Healing in the Face of Disaster. Her other books include Dancing with the Wind, Happiness Genes, and The Sixth Sense. Before becoming a psychotherapist, Dr. Nadell spent 20 years working as a journalist. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Lori. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to see you, Jeffrey. It's been a long time. Yes, it has. I know we've uh, known each other for a very long time, uh, but I'm just learning uh, from reading your new book about your career in journalism because I, I think as far as I have known you, you've always been a psychologist and, of course, the author of The Sixth Sense, which is uh, a best-selling book about ESP. Yes, uh, I, I kind of backed into my second career after some 20 years of working in journalism, mostly in TV news as a writer-producer of what we call breaking news. In the, in the industry, it's called hard news, and also a year as a field reporter in South America. And uh, as a result of, of exposure to a lot of uh, images of disasters, I came to recognize that people whose lives were shattered by these mega events like uh, the tsunami in Thailand or uh, Parkland or 9-11, that people would need specialized long-term support. So I went back to school um, in the late 80s and uh, I emerged with a doctorate in psychology, cognitive psychology, and a doctorate in clinical hypnotherapy. And uh, I've been working in this field since 1991. Well, you know, you not only are a, a psychologist and, and a journalist, but you've also personally experienced uh, traumatic stress. And, and in fact, I learned from reading your book that even in, in your early years as a journalist back in the 1980s, you, you had developed chronic fatigue syndrome. I, I think you described it as being caused by overwork during the Iran-Contra affair. Absolutely. Uh, we had a very bad Writers Guild strike in 1987, and uh, it was followed by returning to work, and there were big staff cutbacks, and uh, we had a lot of pressure working the Iran-Contra hearings, if you remember uh, the late 1980s with Oliver North and uh, um, all these other uh, strange characters uh, who were uh, colleagues or, or associates of President Ronald Reagan. And uh, as a result, I burned out because we had very little staff uh, there, and I was I was kind of shouldering the entire workload, and I ended up with a, a kind of an Epstein Barr virus that literally had me flat on my back for over two years. And it was then that I decided to learn meditation 
because there was no conventional medical treatment for the chronic fatigue virus. And I also began to look into alternative healing and Chinese medicine. And, uh, and then as I began to research Sixth Sense, I became fascinated by the, the power of the mind, which is really still remains unexplored territory, as you know. Well, even with all of that extensive background, I'm under the impression that when your house was virtually destroyed by Hurricane Sandy, uh, you you weren't really prepared for that level of stress. Nobody's ever prepared for that level of stress. And when I uh, when I tweet out to people in, in areas like, like North Carolina, South Carolina, when a big hurricane is coming in, I, I try to warn them that the most devastating moment is when you walk in after the hurricane and you see that everything that you've built has been completely destroyed by this force of nature. Uh, it, it, had, it had a ripple effect in my life that I wasn't prepared for. Uh, and it certainly was was bigger than anyone could have imagined. There were four feet of water in my uh, little beach cottage, and uh, my partner and I were up in the uh, were up in the attic, kind of watching the water creep up the stairs. Uh, it was a uh, it was a very uh, it was a very sobering experience because the water supply was contaminated, and uh, we we didn't have the Red Cross hadn't come in yet to bring fresh water. But uh, six months before this, the hurricane, my father and my uncle had appeared to me in a series of dreams in which they kept telling me to buy water. They said, there's going to be an emergency and you're going to need water. And so I had 13 gallons of water and cases of drinking water, and I was able to help all my neighbors because nobody had clean water. Now, I presume when you say your father and uncle appeared in a dream uh, that they were deceased at the time. Yeah, they'd been deceased for many years, yes. And uh, the dreams were, were very clear. They were lucid dreams. And uh, they, they spoke very, very clearly. The first time uh, my dad came around uh, this time of year, I guess it was around Memorial Day, and uh, gave me this warning. And then my uncle, who was a 33rd degree Mason when he was alive, he came to see me, so I knew that if he was coming all the way from the spirit world to talk to me, that I'd better listen. And he said that um, your father and I are disappointed that you're not taking this more seriously. You really need to go out and get more water. And then around Labor Day, my, my father came back again, and he basically said, you, you still don't have enough water. This is going to be bad. So uh, I, every time I would bring water into the house, uh, people would laugh at me and say, what is this all about? I said, I don't know. But, you know, my, my dad and my uncle came to me in dreams, and they, they told me to buy water, so I'm, I'm acting on their counsel. That was very fortunate. I, I suppose it would have been a lot worse if you didn't have the water, but uh, it was still pretty terrible, uh, not only for you, but for uh, large parts of uh, the community uh, around you there on the East Coast. There were a million people who uh, were impacted, who lost their homes. Uh, there were, there were, it was a, a hit a thousand miles of coastline from uh, the, the southern tip of New Jersey up to around Bridgeport, Connecticut. And uh, most of the houses that were destroyed were beach cottages like mine 
or you know somewhat somewhat larger versions but th- this is not an area where celebrities live you know th- this isn't like the hamptons it's not a place where you find a lot of uh, famous people so we were all working people and we were actually uh, re-traumatized by having to work uh, work our way through all the red tape uh, which uh, which went uh, what people go through after a natural catastrophe is financially traumatizing and uh, that's true after any catastrophe. And I guess I learned that the hard way. Well, I, I, I guess it's worth mentioning, in addition to the chronic fatigue syndrome you experienced as a result of overwork during the Iran-Contra affair, in addition to losing your home in Hurricane Sandy, you also suffered as a result of the uh, 9-11 catastrophe in New York. Yeah, I'm kind of a baby boomer's nightmare. <laughs> I uh, my my office at the time of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001, uh, was was located in the FEMA zone, but north of the border that the that the government has designated as as the impact zone. So uh, I left the windows open the night of uh, September 10th, and when we were allowed back into the uh, FEMA zone. Two weeks later, everything was covered with dust from from the towers, and it was embedded in everything. It was in the receiver of the telephone. It was in the carpet. If you sat down on a chair, the clouds of dust would come up. And uh, I tried finding another office, but it took a few months. And so I was working in an enclosed space and had exposure to about 150 hours of, of breathing that contaminated air. But uh, I'm still here. And uh, I'm still able to work and, and offer whatever I've learned to contribute to the overall healing that's needed right now. And here we are in the midst of, of another traumatic experience facing the whole world. We're having this conversation uh, during the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and I think it's really worth noting that after all you've been through, you are now offering uh, your services as a psychologist to all of the uh, healthcare workers, uh, people who are experiencing trauma on a day-to-day basis. Uh, because of the pandemic, offering your services for free. Well, I don't think of it as for free. I think of it as an exchange. It's my way of thanking people, just as I offer pro bono services for veteran and offering my services as a way of thanking you for your service if you're a veteran or first responder. Um, the, the thing to remember is, is I think two months, uh, the first two months after a disaster, we see a huge rush of empathy. And uh, one of my colleagues who's a chaplain for uh, the fire department uh, was telling me that they call this the mission phase or the hero phase. And then after two to three months, and we see this now in the media, those stories kind of disappear and uh, you know the, the cameras leave. But people are still getting sick and dying, and healthcare workers are still overworked, and they're, they're still watching people. Uh, you know, they're helpless to prevent some of the deaths that are happening. Although I hear that they have uh, a lot more successful uh, results now, they've learned a lot very, very quickly. Uh, but it's still a lot to have to process, especially for doctors and healthcare workers uh, who are young parents themselves. It's been particularly hard uh, to watch the pediatric deaths. And also, you know, it's always hard for a doctor 
when they lose any patient. And so this is this is really a humanitarian crisis on a whole different level than what we've seen before. In your book, The Five Gifts, you come to realize that if people are uh, really going to uh, bounce back, if they're going to show resilience in the face of, of this kind of acute trauma, the kind of trauma that I've never had to experience in my life. And, and fortunately, I think most people have never had to experience that there are really uh, some spiritual approaches. I, I would call them spiritual or psychological, perhaps, that uh, can make a huge difference to people. I was really kind of desperate uh, the first few months after uh, Sandy. I mean, every day, you're out there with a knife in your teeth, you know, trying to prevent yourself from being financially cheated by, uh, you know, everybody from unscrupulous vendors to uh, insurance companies to the bank that holds your mortgage. And you're fighting for every dollar. And I was just exhausted. And so I asked myself what I would do if I was my own client. And, you know, it's very hard to live your own advice. But what I would tell somebody is to take 48 hours and turn off all media and don't answer the phone and don't, you know, answer any faxes and just, just kind of stay, do whatever you want, stay quiet, you know, get a massage, relax, meditate, um, you know, drink something soothing and uh, stay hydrated. And so I gave myself that 48 hours. And when I was meditating, I was asking whether this was it for the rest of my life. I mean, am I going to be embroiled in conflict with all of these agencies forever? And I was, I was, I was told there was a, an inner voice that uh, has come to me before that whispered five words. And the five words are humility, patience, empathy, forgiveness, and growth. And I was told to write them down and to share them with people that these were the five gifts that would help us get through the long haul. And uh, so I've been able to share these gifts with the time I was leading uh, two long-term support programs in my own community. And I've been able to share these five gifts with uh, teachers at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas after the shooting. And uh, I've also been doing a lot of uh, lecturing and webinars now uh, within the pandemic to help uh, people in all walks of life to be able to begin to understand that without these five gifts, we're going to be stuck in uh, post-traumatic stress. We're going to be stuck in a sense of being paralyzed and helpless and kind of like a deer frozen in the headlights kind of position uh, because that's, that's what happens if we don't learn how to release or metabolize the trauma that we have taken in through all of our five senses and our sixth sense. One of the things you point out is, is that many people experiencing severe stress like this are tempted to deal with it through alcohol and drugs and caffeine. No, there's no question that now, especially you know, going into the third month of uh, kind of severe restriction, and even though some of the restrictions are easing up, we also have the uh, financial trauma of unemployment in businesses uh, going under. So we have millions and millions of people who are now having to make survival decisions while they're in shock and under a lot of stress. And uh, it's, it's very natural to want to numb out the feelings of fear and panic uh, with alcohol or with your uh, favorite drug, whatever that might be, or in overeating, indulging in desserts and sugar, uh, and not getting enough sleep and not getting enough exercise. 
And, uh, you know, sh- sugar and uh, alcohol are depressants, you know, that they, they will eventually metabolize in a way that, that causes the central nervous system to be depressed. So it's not, you know, they're not an antidote to what anybody is going through now. Um, it's also, on the other hand, not a great time to go on a lifestyle modification program and say, I've got all these goals and I'm going to lose 20 pounds and I'm going to stop smoking. Uh, this is the time to just be moderate in what you can do to take the edge off and know that there is another side of this, but that it takes three to five years to recover from something like this. It's a long and complex journey, and that's why we need the five gifts to help us through. You cite some research in your book that suggests that really maybe after a trauma like that, two-thirds of uh, the people are not going to uh, make a complete recovery. Maybe one-third of the people will will have a, a relatively good recovery, but two-thirds are I, I think maybe one third will have a partial recovery and another third are, are just going to keep going downhill. Unfortunately, that's been the uh, experiential research of uh, teachers who have been working in this field uh, going back 30 years. Uh, and I think that uh, it, it's really important uh, to understand uh, what these thirds are. So one third of people, which is which is which seems to be kind of most people who you'll talk to who've had some kind of uh, major traumatic experience will recover sufficiently so that it's not the first thing that they think about when they wake up in the morning and uh, they can function. And But when they get triggered by an image or something they see on TV or a smell or a sound, their body will re-experience the catastrophe as if it was happening again for the first time or the second time. And that's because trauma, it, like all emotions are stored as molecules and trauma molecules, when they reactivate, they basically take us over so that we are looking at the world through the kind of haunted eyes of the person we were when we experienced that event. Uh, trauma fills us with a sense of helplessness and horror. And most of us will recover sufficiently so that we can kind of deal with it and maybe we'll never understand it because it's really hard to understand something as big and invisible and amorphous as a COVID pandemic or as uh, really like unbelievable as seeing the, the world's tallest buildings come down in a matter of minutes. But we can digest it or metabolize it and come to terms with it to the degree that we, we really don't think about it most of the time, but periodically we'll get reminded because our body will, will suddenly freeze and we'll be uh, re-experiencing the event. One third of people uh, will look at it in such a way or they're able to metabolize it in such a way that they look back at the event as a catalyst for growth and personal change. And we call that post-traumatic, post-traumatic growth. So people will reassess their relationships, They'll decide, uh, well, this is not what I want for the rest of my life. Uh, divorces go up. Marriages go up. Um, dating apps get very, very busy after these disasters. Um, and we see people kind of searching for somebody to compliment them who can go through some of these harsh times in life with. Because that's one of the things that disasters teach us is that we really do need each other for connection. Um, people who have uh, that one third who, who experiences post-traumatic growth will often make a career change 
based on something traumatic that happened, which is kind of what happened to me. And it will be a catalyst for positive change. Unfortunately, about a third of people uh, will not have the resources to recover, perhaps because of uh, socioeconomic reasons, or perhaps because they had previous, uh, you know, pre-existing trauma, because it's much harder to uh, make a full recovery. Uh, for example, if you have childhood trauma, that makes it very, very difficult to, you know, fully reboot after something like September 11th or um that uh, any kind of a, a vi sudden violent event, even a traffic accident. I mean, we're talking now about disasters, but it could be something very simple that causes you to feel helpless and unable to prevent what, you know, stop what, what was happening. So it's a third, a third, and a third. The first of your five gifts is humility. I, uh, why why would humility be especially important when uh, facing a, a disastrous situation? When I first wrote the proposal for this book, which I would say was rejected by 15 or 16 publishers, uh, it was called The Five Unbearable Gifts. And Buddhist monks loved the title because it embraces the paradox. Nobody wants these gifts until we need them. Uh, but publishers hated the title, so it became the five gifts. So humility is not a gift that, that we uh, look upon with favor in our culture because people want to be famous and they want, you know, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on being successful in the ego language of success. And humility is, is really the grace of accepting that you know we're in an unfortunate circumstance or we've experienced a terrible loss of uh, something that we're probably not going to come out of anytime soon or we may we will never go back to things the way they were and we're feeling wounded and lost and afraid and alone and the gift of humility helps us to get grounded and to understand that people all over the world go through suffering and that no human life is free from suffering and uh, in many of the other cultures where I interviewed uh, people who survived, you know, years of hardship and, and massive disasters, humility was the first gift that everyone refers to, because it's just very simply accepting that I'm not special. Uh, this was I wasn't singled out for this, uh, but every human life goes through some suffering, and now this is this is mine. Or now we can say, but we're, we're suffering along with everybody else in the world. So humility is the grace that lets us just accept that this is a tough road right now. One of the uh, other things you point out, I guess it's sort of related to humility, is that oftentimes in the face of a disaster, not only do you become a, a victim of the disaster, but you can uh, later on, people tend to blame the, the victims. Yes, you know what happens, it starts about six, seven months after the event because the cameras have left and the hero phase is over, and yet people are still dealing with the effects of having lost somebody, say, to COVID, or the fear that they or someone they love might get sick because it, we're going to have to learn to coexist with this the way people in Africa coexist with malaria. It's not going away anytime soon. So the, the pathogen is going to be around, and, uh, and, and people will still be frightened or upset. 
And you find that other people have kind of, uh, they, they've, they've shelved it somehow or they've compartmentalized it. And then they will start saying to people who are suffering, what's wrong with you? Uh, why aren't you over this yet? Uh, this happened three months ago. Um, you should be over it right now. You know, why don't you go shopping or, you know, you, you, you need to, you need to cheer up. Why don't you smile more? And, uh, and yet the, the actual event itself, if we look at the beginning of the lockdown, is kind of an anniversary that when we pass that anniversary, some people feel tremendous relief. But for many people, you know, as long as the threat exists, uh, the fear is going to exist as well to a certain level. And you cannot say to somebody who's frightened and, and lost or, or who's dealing with loss, what's wrong with you? You shouldn't feel that way. You should be over it by now because there's nothing that's more upsetting to a traumatized person than being told that there's something else wrong with them. Um, you, you can't always control how trauma presents in the body because it's physiological. And it can take, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of different modalities to kind of get it under control uh, so that you're not paralyzed by it. I think you point out, uh, for example, that post-traumatic stress syndrome is, is not so much a disease as it is a normal response to an abnormal situation. Yes, that's what the Red Cross tells people after a disaster, that you have, you're a normal person having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. And I think that it's very important to, you know, create safety, emotional safety for people who are going through, um, you know, the, the aftermath of any kind of um, sudden violent event. It, it could even be a near miss uh, on the highway or witnessing an accident. You know, you can, you can also be traumatized by watching disturbing images on TV or online. Uh, it's called VT or vicarious traumatization, and it's very real. And uh, last June, the National Institutes of Health declared PTSD to be a national epidemic. 44 million Americans, of whom 6 million are veterans. So 38 million, 39 million civilians were reported to be suffering from post-traumatic stress. Most people who are dealing with this don't know that they have it because the symptoms can be subtle and people don't necessarily go, you know, present for, for diagnosis and treatment. So, you know, in the next six months, we're going to see an escalation of this pre-existing epidemic uh, on, on levels that we've never seen before. And I suppose we haven't even really begun to experience the kind of financial hardships that uh, many experts say uh, we're in store for because uh, the economy, as much as many people would like to see it bounce back strongly, uh, there are many indications that the economy is never going to be quite the same again. It's going to take a few years. I mean, it took a few years after 9-11, at least in, in New York City. It took a few years um, after 2008. There was a recession in 1990, 1991, when the dot-com bubble burst. Uh, that one took uh, three or four years, uh, you know, to, to come out of. So, uh, you know, the second gift, which I call the really unbearable gift, this is the one that nobody wants, is patience. And patience is the gift that allows us to accept that a year from now or two years from now, we're still hurting, we're still upset, uh, we still get triggered, or we, we still haven't recovered financially, and we're still, you know, trying to survive. Uh, this is going to take a long time to heal. 
And it's, it's going to take several years, I think, to recover from this uh, psychologically, uh, you know, medically, I think, you know, the, the change to the medical system and the, the, the triple strand, I think call this a triple, a triple strand pandemic, because you have the, the pathogen, the virus, you have the mental health epidemic, and you have the third strand, which you've just mentioned, which is socioeconomic catastrophe and financial trauma, which is always the elephant in the room that nobody talks about. Financial trauma can lead to loss of self-esteem, especially if you're somebody who's always worked hard and paid all of your bills. Um, it can it can lead to serious uh, you know serious depression and uh, bankruptcies uh, will go up in any state that's had a disaster by about 38 um, percent in the year or two following any disaster. So we're in for a rough ride economically. One of the points you're making is that these traumatic events are. Uh, they have waves and, and ripples. It's, it's not a one-time event. There can be ripples that will extend out for years. The psychological ripples, you know, do extend for years. And in fact, it, it really takes three to five years to metabolize a traumatic event. And we, I was running a program for teenagers whose fathers were killed in the World Trade Center attack. And um, we started, I started that program two years after the event because teenagers especially tend to shut down uh, when something horrible happens. You know, they go to their room, they close their door, uh, they, don't, they don't want to talk about it. And some of the kids who came into the program had basically shut out their mothers and uh, weren't talking about it, hadn't spoken about it at all. So uh, it's really important to be patient with yourself. And that's where the gift of forgiveness comes in. We have to start by forgiving ourselves because it may take a long time for our, our unstable emotions to resolve themselves and for a lot of the pain to resolve itself as well. Of your five gifts, the one that I really find the most fascinating based on my background is empathy. Uh, and uh, you, uh, having written a, a classic book about extrasensory perception, I, I think can really appreciate that one of the major blocks, why isn't everybody psychic all the time, I, I think is because we don't want to have to experience the pain of other people. Uh, but an experience like this of trauma uh, opens us up to that, and it can be very positive. Well, I think if you speak to anybody who has gone into uh, any kind of healing field, it usually comes out of a personal experience of loss and trauma. Um, it does make you more compassionate, uh, but I do have to you know, tell people who are not at nature compassionate and who don't want to feel other people's feelings that you can be an empathy warrior. Uh, if we think of, say, rescue crews that, that go in and, and help people in emergencies, you know, that they, they really model empathy for each other. They, they work as a team. Uh, they work to save your life. They work to, to get you into an ambulance and get you into a hospital quickly. Uh, but they're not taking on other people's feelings unless there is some kind of a tragic incident or like a child dies during the, the call. They're, they're trained to be empathetic. And to ask the question of the patient, what do you need? And to serve that need without necessarily having to feel what that patient is feeling. So, you know, it's a fine line. You, everybody can learn the skills of empathy 
And if you really don't want to, if you're not open to and you don't want to feel what somebody else is going through, you can still learn empathy and not have to feel what someone else is feeling. Well, you did point out that in, in your community of, I think, Long Beach in New York, uh, after uh, subsequent hurricanes hit other communities, your community that had suffered so badly from Hurricane Sandy uh, contributed large amounts of money uh, and other forms of aid to uh, other communities that had been so hard struck. Uh, having been through the disasters did seem to open up that uh, I think of it as a psychic faculty. Well, it definitely did. Uh, there's tremendous empathy and concern every time, you know, there's a town that has a tornado or suffers a flood or a hurricane. Um, you know, my community, the other barrier island communities are extremely generous here along the south shore of Long Island, extremely generous in uh, outreach towards uh, other communities that are uh, suffering and recovering from uh, especially hurricanes, which which we get along the coast. Uh, the horrible thing about a hurricane is that you know you lose things that are ephemeral, like your photos, uh, your family photos, uh, you, your Christmas lights, you know, years and generations of holiday decorations, mementos, things that that you uh, captured back and brought back with you. Uh, and uh, we we try to send people. As, mu as much as we can to help them get new Christmas lights and you know, new, uh, new, new toys that are unused for the children, uh, uh, books, uh, winter clothes. Uh, we, we forget that, that things like shoes and socks and underwear, uh, when you don't have them, they become very, very important. Um, I somehow, when I, when I packed uh, a, a contractor's bag, as I had to evacuate because that the, the contaminated water uh, had created uh, a toxic zone everywhere on the island, and my house was, it smelled like a sewer. It was horrible. And there was waste, uh, you know, plastered all over the walls. So I grabbed whatever I could and put it in the contractor bag. And when I unpacked it, I realized that I had uh, 17 pairs of socks and no underwear. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of grab whatever you can that's not soiled and hope for the best. And then you kind of have to, why, my goodness, why did, why do I have 17 pairs of socks and no underwear? Because I was just throwing everything in the bag uh, kind of in a, in a frightened and uh, hurried state. So people have to make these critical decisions, you know, for a long time when they're in shock. And that also creates another layer of stress, you know, in the body. And it, in the case of COVID, the anxiety and PTSD and, and extra stress can depress the immune system and make it harder to fight off or recover from uh, the, the, the virus itself. You wrote about uh, people having to flee from their homes and not, not even having contact lenses or glasses with them. It must be very disorienting. It's a very strange experience when you had, uh, you know, a, a completely familiar, um, kind of safe, mundane, uh, you know, or not so mundane little neighborhood, you know, where people had barbecues in their backyards and you had your little garden and, uh, you know, kids rode their bicycles down the block and went surfing. And, you know, it was just like this idyllic community. And then suddenly it was just, uh, if you see pictures of, of uh, the barrier islands after the storm, it, it looked like a war zone. And uh, everything that was familiar was gone. I mean, There's no post office. There were there were no stores open. Uh, there was only one place that you could buy uh, 
you know, food that was the takeout food that was already made. Uh, it, there was no cell phone service for several days. And so we were really cut off from everything. And uh, it, it's, it's a life-changing experience, I will say. If you've never, it, I fortunately had traveled to other countries and I'd lived in third world uh, communities where some days there was no water and electricity went out uh, fairly frequently and you were dealing with, uh, you know, insects and uh, conditions that were not really hygienic. So I kind of, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, um, shift into that mode of, okay, I've been here before and uh, I, I can get very calm and just kind of, you know, do what I need to do as best as possible. But it's still very frightening. And the fifth gift that you write about is is growth. Uh, I know there are some people, I've had the great privilege of interviewing some people who have gone through terrible traumas and, and, and they learn so much. They gain so much from that experience that they're actually willing to say, if I had to do it all over again, I would. I would do it in a heartbeat. Uh, but I imagine only very few people get to that level. I think that's a level of wisdom and enlightenment that very few people get. Um, I do have moments, you know, when I look back at, uh, say, the chronic fatigue, which was clearly a catalyst for me to develop a, a, a completely new and, and very fulfilling second career that I've been fortunate to be in practice now for the last 30 years. And so that was longer than my journalism career, which was uh, 20 years. I, I, I do sometimes uh, write uh, for articles for magazines. I do some journalism, but mostly I've been in private practice for the last 30 years. It would never have happened if I hadn't burned out and gotten chronic fatigue. And when I look back, I would, I would say, if I had to do that again, that one I would go through again. Uh, 9-11, um, you know, that the, the living with the legacy of 9-11, uh, does make me feel much more connected to others who are struggling with 9-11 illnesses, and my heart goes out to them. But if I look back and say, would I want to go through that again? I have to say, probably not. <laughs> and of course, Hurricane Sandy, uh, I assume that was really the most devastating uh, disaster for you. You know, I, I thought that I was fine. Um, I didn't. I didn't cry, and I kind of soldiered through it. And I was leading support groups, and I stayed on the island for four years, and then I, I moved uh, out of state for three, three and a half years. When I went back to the island uh, recently, uh, I was flooded with flashbacks, and I realized that it was much more intense for me than I had realized at the time, and that uh, my entire relationship to the ocean had shifted. And uh, I really, I've, I've moved inland because it, it just left me feeling not so safe living next to an ocean, which can become angry and destructive at any moment. So it, it did, it did permanently imprint my relationship with the sea, which was always so important to me. Yes, you wrote a book about windsurfing. Yes, yes, I did. I was a windsurfer for 20 years, and that was really amazing. And I, I got to write for windsurfing journals and write about windsurfing for the New York Times. And uh, I lived in a wetsuit like nine months of the year, and you just couldn't get me out of the water or off the water. Um, it was my form of meditation. When I was working in TV news, there was nothing 
better than going out, you know, on the water on the weekend and just kind of letting all of the noise and all of the problems uh, and issues of the world, you kind of leave them on land and you take off and the water, you know, the mother of the sea takes our, takes our worries away. So it uh, really became my, my best form of uh, meditating was to be out there solo with a sail and just kind of exploring the, uh, the inlets uh, on the great, great South Bay. So that's all uh, part of your past now, I presume. Yeah, windsurfing is a young person's sport. <laughs> I think uh, I'm glad that I could do it. Uh, I did try doing it a few years ago, but uh, windsurfing did lead me to study Zen with uh, Peter Matheson. Um, I sat formally as a student for four and a half years and have been practicing meditation every day since, uh, I guess, the early, like, 1990, 1991. Um, actually, no, since I, got, since I got sick in 1987. I've been practicing meditation. And if I hadn't had the illness, I probably would never have started meditating. So there's another benefit of illness. And, and I have to imagine that you would recommend meditation for anybody experiencing any type of trauma. I do strongly recommend meditation. But when you're going through something traumatic and your life is in upheaval, it's very hard to close your eyes for 20 minutes and breathe. Um, and so there's Harvard research shows that if we have four five minute mini breaks where we completely relax the mind and body using some kind of meditation or relaxation training or self hypnosis or yoga, uh, those five minute windows will give us the same health benefits as one 20 minute session. And so I tell people, especially after, in the aftermath of a disaster, start with one five-minute window and just close your eyes. And even if you think about a place that you feel warm and safe or the vacation that you took last year, just let yourself float back into that experience and hang out there for five minutes because it's going to lower your blood pressure and it's going to clear your mind. Uh, I've developed a few techniques that I call emotional first aid that work very quickly they're not a substitute for meditation, but they do help to clear your mind so that you can sit down for five minutes and just breathe. Well, that sounds like excellent advice. Uh, Dr. Laurie Nadell, this has been a real pleasure. I, I'm thrilled to be reconnecting with you after many years. We, we've been closely associated through the Intuition Network. Uh, for a long time. And, and I hope to have more opportunities uh, to be with you. And uh, I'm sure we'll have much more to talk about uh, as well. Thank you so much for being with me, Laurie. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate your friendship and your kindness and your support for the five gifts, which we really do need now more than ever. Thank you. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.